Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on William Blake, Prophet of a New Age. Those who have been told that my works are but an unscientific and irregular eccentricity, a madman's scrawls, I demand of them to do me the justice to examine before they decide. William Blake wrote these words in a catalogue he prepared for a public exhibition of his paintings in 1809. He hoped that such an exhibition would bring him the public recognition so far denied to him, but he was disappointed. Few people came, and the only reviews were hostile. It was a decisive failure for Blake, who lived the rest of his life in poverty and obscurity, his work known only to a handful of loyal patrons and friends. It's hard to think of an artist so highly regarded by posterity who was so completely unknown in his own time. It was 50 years after his death before the first great exhibition of his paintings was assembled and a 100 before the first adequate edition of his poetry appeared. But gradually, Blake began to be understood, not just as an artist of unusual imaginative force or as a symbolist poet before his time, but as a great creative mind, an artist who contained the future, the prophet of a new age. Tonight's program is about Blake's career as a visionary painter who believed that the artist must copy a reality more real than nature. He who does not imagine in stronger and better lineaments and in stronger and better light than his perishing mortal eye can see does not imagine at all. About the failure of his badly attended and badly reviewed exhibition. The praises bestowed last year on this unfortunate man's illustrations of Blair's grave have stimulated him to publish his madness more largely and thus again exposed him, if not to the derision, at least to the pity of the public. About the years of obscurity in which he worked on his great epic poem, Jerusalem. I give you the end of a golden string, only wind it into a ball. It will lead you in at heaven's gate, built in Jerusalem's wall. And about the achievements and the friendships of his final years, when he created his illustrations to the Book of Job and the Divine Comedy, and won the admiration of younger artists like Samuel Palmer. In this most false, corrupt, and genteelly stupid town, my spirit sees his dwelling, as it were an island in the midst of the sea, such a place for primitive grandeur in the persons of Mr. and Mrs. Blake. The third and final program in our series, William Blake, Prophet of a New Age, written and presented by David Cayley. William Blake is known to many people primarily as a poet. When I first fell in love with his poems in high school, I don't think I even knew that Blake was a painter, or that he had first published his poems as illuminations in which text and design were completely integrated. In his lifetime, it was the other way round. Such reputation as Blake had was based on his book illustrations. His poetry was known only to a few friends or the occasional purchaser of the Songs of Innocence, 
and even some of the friends considered his longer poems as little more than regrettable lapses of taste. Blake began his career as an engraver. His family had not been able to afford the expensive training required for a painter, so they had him apprenticed. And in 1779, he set himself up in his native London as a reproductive engraver. Engraving was a living, and he was proud of his craft, but Blake always wanted to be an artist in his own right. His difficulty was that once he found his mature style at around age 30, his work was so strikingly original that it seemed wild and uncouth to his more conventional contemporaries, and so his quest for public acceptance was perpetually frustrated. Blake's main difference with the landscape artists and portrait painters of his day was his emphasis on the imagination. He believed that painters should copy not nature, but the visions of the inward eye. The prophets describe what they saw in vision as real and existing men whom they saw with their imaginative and immortal organs. The apostles the same. The clearer the organ, the more distinct the object. A spirit and a vision are not, as the modern philosophy supposes, a cloudy vapour or a nothing. They are organised and minutely articulated beyond all that the mortal and perishing nature can produce. He who does not imagine in stronger and better lineaments and in stronger and better light than his perishing mortal eye can see does not imagine at all. The painter of this work asserts that all his imaginations appear to him infinitely more perfect and more minutely organized than anything seen by his mortal eye. Spirits are organized men. If you look at one of Blake's pictures, you'll find that it's stereoscopic. It has depth, it's linear, and the figures float. None of those figures, at that picture that I'm looking at with you, are on the ground. They're all floating. Time and again, Blake's pictures are in the air. They're not in this world. They're not of this world. This is George Goiter, one of the founders of the William Blake Trust, an organization which has made facsimiles of Blake's works widely available. Look at his contemporaries. Look at Stottard and Fuseli. I mean, they were great artists and thought of as much better artists in their generation than William Blake. But look at their floating figures, they're ridiculous. Or George Richmond, who has a painting which was sold for some huge sum the other day at Sotheby's. The figure is floating in the air, but he looks ridiculous. But Blake's floating figures look genuine because they float in an aura, in a, in a sea or in the air that the artist himself lives in or has seen. And that's why Blake cannot be written off as a bad artist or a second-rate artist. He succeeds, as very few artists have ever succeeded, in my opinion, in conveying the reality of a world beyond this world, which all of us want to know about. Um, but he does it in such a way that he brings it home to us that this reality is here and now and not in the hereafter, that we can grasp it. And he grasps it in his linear characterization of human figures. And they, they somehow they're supernaturally dignified. And they make one feel at home. Yes, I know that state. Uh, I'm at home. That's Eden, if you like. For me, Blake has been a, a, an absolutely seminal influence in my whole life. I owe an enormous debt to William Blake. 
I hope to see him one day and tell him so. If the spectator could enter into these images in his imagination, approaching them on the fiery chariot of his contemplative thought, if he could enter into Noah's rainbow or into his bosom, or could make a friend and companion of one of these images of wonder which always entreats him to leave mortal things, then would he arise from his grave, then would he meet the Lord in the air, and then he would be happy. Twice in his life, William Blake thought he had public recognition within his grasp. The first time was in the 1790s, when he was commissioned to design and engrave illustrations for a popular poem called Night Thoughts by Edward Young. The edition failed when the publisher went out of business, and Blake was left unacknowledged and virtually unpaid. Then in 1805, he got a second chance. An engraver turned publisher called Robert Cromack commissioned Blake to design and engrave illustrations for another popular poem, this time Robert Blair's The Grave, University of Toronto Blake scholar Gerald Bentley. The work was advertised as to bear 15 engravings by Blake after his own designs. And in the same month as that prospectus appeared, there appeared another prospectus which said that there were to be not 15 engravings but 12, and they were to be engraved not by Blake, but by Luigi Chavanetti, who had a very different style from Blake's. And among other things, the very large sum of money which Blake should have expected to earn from this was therefore lost. Chavanetti was paid as much as 60 guineas for one engraving, whereas Blake, for his whole part, was paid uh, apparently about 20 pounds for the designs. And if Blake had been paid 20, 30, 40 pounds per engraving for 12 engravings, that would have been a lot of money. Consequently, there is a simple commercial betrayal. He had been promised commissions and did not get them. Secondly, he had hoped to put his own work in the form which was most appropriate, that is, engraved by the designer before the public. And I'm sure he would have been willing to make financial sacrifices to do that. It would have been cheaper to have Blake do it than Chavanetti. But he also wanted to do it in a style which was peculiarly his own and not the slick popular sentimental style of Chavanetti. And at this point, Blake had sold the drawings. He therefore no longer had any control. He could not prevent the publication of the work by Cromack with the engravings by Chavanetti instead of by Blake. And Blake was deeply embittered by this. He uh, has scurrilous couplets in his notebook about Chavanetti. And to a significant extent, he seems to be withdrawing from the world after this. Blake's bitterness about his betrayal by Cromack was not an isolated or unusual feeling. Both as an engraver and a neglected artist, Blake felt keen resentments against the artistic establishment of his day. He also had a considerable talent for invective, and the margins of his copies of the works of those he considered his enemies are full of intemperate and entertaining remarks. One such enemy was Sir Joshua Reynolds, the president of the Royal Academy when Blake was a young student at the Royal Academy School. 
Reynolds was a prosperous, socially ambitious portrait painter. There's no evidence he ever wished or did any harm to Blake, but Blake hated him as a symbol of docile, respectable art. Having spent the vigor of my youth and genius under the oppression of Sir Joshua and his gang of cunning hired knaves, without employment and as much as could possibly be without bread, the reader must expect to read in my remarks on these books nothing but indignation and resentment. The inquiry in England is not whether a man has talents and genius, but whether he is passive and polite and a virtuous ass, obedient to noblemen's opinions in art and science. If he is, he is a good man. If not, he must be starved. Because he was an engraver, um, this put him in a slightly different sort of social relationship to other artists. David Bindman, a professor at the University of London and the curator of the Blake exhibition, which was held in Toronto in 1982 and 83. He didn't therefore mix on the whole with painters so much as with other engravers. And this, I think, preserved the sense of distance between Blake's own background and that of the uh, sort of, I suppose, main intellectual life of London. I mean, he clearly felt that he was a different sort of person from, say, Reynolds, not just that he was painting different kind of pictures, but that, that Reynolds was um, a gentleman, he was not a gentleman, and so on. And so I think this is important because it does tend to uh, mean that uh, Blake's view of the world is essentially a radical one. I mean, he is, in, in the last resort, um, not part of the establishment, and he knows this, and he's uh, quite prepared to see that uh, his future does not lie with them. Blake had substantive differences with Reynolds as well. In fact, Reynolds' discourses on the art of painting, with their conventional 18th-century opinions, were a perfect foil for Blake, and the margins of Blake's copy of the discourses are full of fascinating byplay. The glory of the human mind, writes Reynolds, is its disposition to abstractions and generalizations. To generalize is to be an idiot, retorts Blake. To particularize alone is the distinction of merit. And so it goes. Reynolds believes that genius may be taught and that inspiration is a lie and a deceit. He believes that man learns all that he knows. I say, on the contrary, that man brings all that he has or can have into the world with him. Man is born a garden, ready planted and sown. This world is too poor to produce one seed. I do not believe that Raphael taught Michelangelo or that Michelangelo taught Raphael any more than I believe that the rose teaches the lily how to grow or the apple tree teaches the pear tree how to bear fruit. In 1809, William Blake made one final bid for recognition. He had already been stung by his betrayal over the engravings for Blair's poem, The Grave, and then he had suffered what he thought was a further betrayal when Robert Cromack published an engraving of Chaucer's Canterbury Pilgrims, very suspiciously similar to a design of Blake's. So Blake decided to appeal directly to the public. He mounted an exhibition of his works in the home of his brother James, the home where Blake was born and where James now ran the family hosiery business. 
The paintings exhibited are described by Blake's Victorian biographer, Alexander Gilchrist, as singularly remote from ordinary sympathies or even ordinary apprehension. One was called The Spiritual Form of Nelson Guiding Leviathan. This showed Britain's great admiral, naked but for a loincloth, standing among the toils of a terrifying rendering of the biblical sea serpent Leviathan. It's a wonderful statement about worldliness and war. The picture is now in the Tate Gallery in London, but it's hardly a popular treatment of a national hero. Blake wanted to address the public, but never enough to compromise his vision. This work was one of about 20 which were displayed in the rooms of his brother's house. Henry Crabb Robinson, a contemporary man of letters who cultivated artists and writers, was one of the few who went. I went to see an exhibition of Blake's original paintings at a hosier's in Carnaby Market. These paintings fill several rooms of an ordinary dwelling house. And for the site, a half-crown was demanded of the visitor for which he had also a catalogue. This catalogue I possess. And it is a very curious exposure of the state of the artist's mind. I wished to send it to Germany and to give a copy to Lamb and others, so I took four and, giving ten shillings, bargained that I should be at liberty to go again. Free as long as you live, said the brother, astonished at such a liberality. Crab Robinson was not alone in finding Blake's catalogue curious. Even George Cumberland, a loyal, lifelong friend and admirer, thought it part madness, part vanity, as well as part good sense. The catalogue was more than just a description of the works on display. It was also a fiery manifesto, written in the unguarded and opinionated style which Blake had previously confined to his notebook and the margins of his books. The brunt of his attack fell on the painters whom he called blotting and blurring demons, the great Venetian and Flemish painters of the 16th and 17th century. Titian and Correggio are mentioned, as are Rubens and Rembrandt. Rubens, whose works Blake found to be awash in a hellish brownness, was particularly singled out for abuse. Behind this attack was Blake's preference for the clear, luminous colors and linear forms of early Italian painting, a preference he shared with the later Pre-Raphaelites. The invention of oil painting, he believed, had led to blotting and blurring. It had become a fetter to genius and a dungeon to art, and produced a muddy, indefinite style suitable enough for the transient effects of nature but not for the supernatural clarity of imaginative vision. The great and golden rule of art, as well as of life, is this, that the more distinct, sharp, and wiry the bounding line, the more perfect the work of art, and the less keen and sharp, the greater is the evidence of weak imitation, plagiarism, and bungling. What is it that distinguishes honesty from knavery but the hard and wiry line of rectitude and certainty in the actions and intentions? Neither Blake's theories nor his paintings seem to have endeared him to the public. The exhibition was open for about a year, but it attracted few spectators, and the only reviews were hostile. The praises bestowed last year on this unfortunate man's illustrations of Blair's grave have stimulated him to publish his madness more largely, and thus again exposed him, if not to the derision, at least to the pity of the public. The poor man fancies himself a great master and has painted a few 
wretched pictures, very badly drawn. These he calls an exhibition, of which he has published a catalogue, or rather a farrago of nonsense, unintelligibleness and egregious vanity, the wild effusions of a distempered brain. This particular review was doubly unkind, because it appeared in a radical journal called The Examiner, which might have been expected to be sympathetic to Blake. But though Blake's politics might have pleased the editors, his spiritual enthusiasm clearly did not, nor did his views on the history of art, and the rest of the review was as patronizing as this excerpt. With the failure of his exhibition, Blake's last chance of reaching the public was lost. He never tried again. Little is known of Blake's life in the years immediately after 1810. There are no personal letters and few references to him in contemporary writings. He doesn't really reappear until around 1818 when he began to know the younger painters like Samuel Palmer who have left us a portrait of his last years. To the eyes of these younger men, Blake seemed a serene figure, happy and at peace with himself. This was not entirely a change. Blake seems to have been happy for much of his life, and in a letter written in 1803, he speaks of the exceeding joy that is always poured out on my spirit. But as he grew older, he certainly achieved a greater freedom and detachment than he had known during the years of his youth. This detachment is already evident in his notebook writings after 1810. He seems more willing to let the world go its own way, and he stresses the eternal sameness of things much more than the possibility of change, as in this passage from his prospectus for his engraving of Chaucer's Canterbury Pilgrims. The characters of Chaucer's Pilgrims are the characters that compose all ages and nations. As one age falls, another rises, different to mortal sight, but to immortals only the same. For we see the same characters repeated again and again in animals, in vegetables, in minerals, and in men. Accident ever varies. Substance can never suffer change and decay. Every age is a Canterbury pilgrimage. While we are in the world of mortality, we must suffer. The whole creation groans to be delivered. There will always be as many hypocrites born as honest men, and they will always have superior power in mortal things. You cannot have liberty in this world without what you call moral virtue, and you cannot have moral virtue without the slavery of that half of the human race who hate what you call moral virtue. I am really sorry to see my countrymen trouble themselves about politics. If men were wise, the most arbitrary princes could not hurt them. If they are not wise, the freest government is compelled to be a tyranny. Princes appear to me to be fools. Houses of commons and houses of lords appear to me to be fools. They seem to me to be something else besides human life.
One of the sources of Blake's detachment from history's passing show was his belief in Jesus. He gave final expression to his understanding of Christianity in his last, his longest, and to some his greatest poem, Jerusalem, the poem he was writing and illustrating during the years of obscurity between 1810 and 1818 when he printed the first copy. Its core is Blake's conception of Jesus as God. Blake uses Emanuel Swedenborg's phrase, the divine humanity. Kathleen Raine, a lifelong student of Blake, believes that this is the same conception found in the Gospel of St. John. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the Word which was in the beginning, which is the, the image in which man was created, the image and likeness of God. He is that which creates eternally the universe and man himself. In him we live and move and have our being. For Blake, essentially, you see, God has a human face. Because man bears the image of God, therefore God is that of which man is the image. This is profoundly Swedenborgian. This is the very essence of Swedenborg's teaching. So it is a Christianity which totally, as it were, interiorizes the being of Jesus Christ. Blake actually says that for any single generated human being to assume the role of God is blasphemy because God is in all humanity. Jesus is the divine in all men for Blake. And that Jesus not only claiming that he was the son of God, but, but saying that man was the son of God, that we, this is, he was the, the, the way opener, the firstborn. This is a very great vision. But essentially for Blake, God is not a faceless abstraction. He is the divine humanity, the imagination. Blake conceived the way of Jesus as virtually opposite to the way of religion and much of Jerusalem is about the conflict between these paths. Religion to Blake meant morality, and morality meant eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the cause of the fall. Blake aimed always at Eden, at humanity's unfallen state, and Eden, by definition, is beyond good and evil. We do not find anywhere that Satan is accused of sin. He is only accused of unbelief and thereby drawing man into sin that he may accuse him. Such is the last judgment, a deliverance from Satan's accusations. Satan thinks that sin is displeasing to God. He ought to know that nothing is displeasing to God but unbelief and eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Men are admitted into heaven not because they have governed their passions or have no passions, but because they have cultivated their understandings. The treasures of heaven are not negations of passion, but realities of intellect from which all the passions emanate uncurbed in their eternal glory. The fool shall not enter into heaven, let him be ever so holy. Holiness is not the price of entrance into heaven. Those who are cast out are all those who have no passions of their own because no intellect and have spent their lives in curbing and governing other peoples by the various arts of poverty and cruelty of all kinds. Woe, woe, woe to you hypocrites! Blake's belief that Christianity supersedes any moral law is not original with him. 
It's a doctrine which has a fancy theological name. It's called antinomianism and a long history amongst the radical Christians from whom Blake was descended. Michael Ferber is the author of The Social Vision of William Blake. Now, antinomianism is a theological term that refers to the doctrine that with the coming of Christ, all our sins are forgiven, and in particular the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy and so on, the Ten Commandments, no longer apply to Christians. And you find a version of this even in the main Protestant theologians, uh, Luther and Calvin and so on, but they're very wary of it because, uh, well, the implications are obvious. If, you're an antinom if you really believe that all your sins are forgiven, it doesn't much matter what you do. And a number of the, eight, the 17th century radicals uh, adopted it very explicitly and argued that they are free to do what they like and that the only law is the law of Jesus as they feel it, as they intuit it. Now, many of these people were, in fact, very law-abiding and gentle people. A few felt they were free to commit crimes, usually theft or sexual abandon or tried various drugs. And some even argued that in order to be a true antinomian or that is a true Christian, you must systematically violate all the laws that you were told not to. So you could go through the Ten Commandments and all the Book of Deuteronomy and just break them one after the other, and that would show that you're free, you're liberated from these constraints. Well, I think Blake in his personal behavior was not much like that. But he certainly has nothing but scorn, and you see this throughout his writings, nothing but scorn for the Ten Commandments, for moral codes, for the laws of Britain, which were just impositions on the life, the energy, the inherent gentleness and creativity and love that he thought people would express if they were not distorted by these things. Go, Spectre. Go to these fiends of righteousness. Tell them to obey their humanities and not pretend holiness. Go, tell them that the worship of God is honoring his gifts in other men and loving the greatest men best, each according to his genius, which is the Holy Ghost in man. There is no other God than that God who is the intellectual fountain of humanity. He who envies or calumniates, which is murder and cruelty, murders the Holy One. Go tell them this and overthrow their cup, their bread, their altar table, their incense and their oath, their marriage and their baptism, their burial and consecration. He who would see the divinity must see him in his children, one first in friendship and love, then a divine family, and in the midst Jesus will appear. I stood among my valleys of the south and saw a flame of fire, even as a wheel of fire surrounding all the heavens. It went from west to east against the current of creation and devoured all things in its loud fury and thundering course round heaven and earth. By it the sun was rolled into an orb. By it the moon faded into a globe, travelling through the night. From its dire and restless fury, man himself shrunk up into a little root a fathom long. And I asked a watcher and a holy one its name. He answered, It is the wheel of religion. I wept and said, 
Is this the law of Jesus, this terrible devouring sword turning every way? He answered, Jesus died because he strove against the current of this wheel. Its name is Caiaphas, the dark preacher of death, of sin, of sorrow, and of punishment. But Jesus is the bright preacher of life, creating nature from this fiery law, by self-denial and forgiveness of sin. In 1818, William Blake was introduced to John Linnell, one of a circle of younger painters who called themselves the Ancients. Several of them, including George Richmond, Edward Calvert, Samuel Palmer, and Linnell himself, went on to have successful careers as artists. They called themselves the Ancients because they believed that ancient man was better than modern man, and they saw in Blake the archetype of the prophet, the visionary seer, They called Blake's modest two-room flat off the Strand the House of the Interpreter, and Samuel Palmer is said, on one occasion, to have reverently kissed the bell-pull before entering. Blake joined them on trips to Palmer's grandfather's cottage in Kent, and they called on him in London. Years later, Palmer recalled these scenes for Blake's biographer. How well I remember a visit to the Royal Academy in Blake's company. The caprice of memory presents me with the image of Blake in his plain black suit and rather broad-rimmed but not Quakerish hat, standing so quietly among all the dressed-up, rustling, swelling people, and myself thinking, how little you know who is among you. In person, there was much in Blake which answered to the remarkable man he was. Though low in stature, not quite five feet and a half, and broad-shouldered, he was well-made and did not strike people as short. For he had an upright carriage and a good presence. He bore himself with dignity, as not unconscious of his natural claims. The head and face were strongly stamped with the power and character of the man, There was great volume of brain in that square, massive head, that piled-up brow, very full and rounded at the temples, where, according to phrenologists, ideality or imagination resides. His eyes were fine. Wonderful eyes, someone calls them, prominently set, but bright, spiritual, visionary. Not restless or wild, but with a look of clear, heavenly exaltation. The eyes of some of the old men in his job recall his own to surviving friends. Money he used with careful frugality but never loved it and believed that he should be always supplied with it as it was wanted. And he worked on with serenity when there was only a shilling in the house, 
Once he told me he spent part of one of those last shillings on a camel hair's brush. While engrossed in designing, he had often an aversion to resuming his graver or to being troubled with money matters. It put him out very much when Mrs Blake referred to the financial topic or found herself constrained to announce, The money is going, Mr Blake. Oh, damn the money, he would shout. It's always the money. Her method of hinting at the odious subject became, in consequence, a very quiet and expressive one. She would set before him at dinner just what there was in the house, without any comment, until finally the empty platter had to make its appearance. Which hard fact effectually reminded him it was time to go to his engraving for a while. At that, when fully embarked again, he was not unhappy, work being his natural element. I rose up at the dawn of day. Get thee away, get thee away, praise thou for riches, away, away, this is the throne of mammon grey. Said I, this shore is very odd, I took it to be the throne of God, for everything besides I have, it is only for riches that I can crave. I have mental joy and mental health and mental friends and mental wealth. I have a wife I love and that loves me. I have all but riches bodily. I am in God's presence night and day, and he never turns his face away. The accuser of sins by my side does stand, and he holds my money bag in his hand. For my worldly things God makes him pay, and he'd pay for more if to him I would pray. And so you may do the worst you can do. Be assured, Mr. Devil, I won't pray to you. Then, if for riches I must not pray, God knows I little of prayers need say. So as a church is known by its steeple, if I pray, it must be for other people. He says, if I do not worship him for a god, I shall eat coarser food and go worse shod. So as I don't value such things as these, you must do, Mr. Devil, just as God please. The ancients seem to have known little of the scope of Blake's work. Palmer neither liked nor understood Blake's longer poems, and Linnell remarked that he found some of Blake's religious opinions sadly at variance with sound doctrine. Both men were pious and conservative, and Blake influenced their work mainly through a small set of wood engravings which he did for a schoolbook edition of Virgil's Pastorals. Palmer particularly was enchanted. They are visions of little dells and nooks and corners of paradise. There is in all such a mystic and dreamy glimmer as penetrates and kindles the inmost soul and gives complete and unreserved delight, unlike the gaudy daylight of this world. They are like all that wonderful artist's works, the drawing aside of the fleshly curtain and the glimpse which all the most holy, studious saints and sages have enjoyed of that rest which remaineth to the people of God. The figures of Mr. Blake have that intense soul-evidencing attitude and action and that elastic nervous spring which belongs to uncaged immortal spirits. 
Blake's association with the ancients, and particularly with John Linnell, resulted in some of Blake's greatest work. His illustrations to Dante's Divine Comedy, on which he was still working when he died, and his illustrations to the Old Testament book of Job. During the 1820s, Linnell paid Blake for whatever he produced, which left Blake free to do what he wanted. Earlier, Blake had enjoyed a similar relationship with a government official called Thomas Butts. Blake, who was no diplomat, didn't always have an easy time with patrons. When one potential benefactor criticized the obscurity of his symbolism, he told him, in so many words, that he was an idiot. But Butts and Linnell were sympathetic and tolerant patrons, and to them we owe the existence of a large part of Blake's work. One of the first things Blake did for Linnell were the illustrations to the Book of Job, a series of wonderful watercolor paintings which he later engraved. Kathleen Raine has made these pictures the subject of a book called The Human Face of God. Far from seeing Job as some theologians have done, as a man of perfection, of life, and faultless in every way, being deliberately put to the test by God, Blake sees Job as righteous in his own selfhood. That is to say, he was a morally righteous man, living according to the outward law. He kept all the rules, he did all the right things, but this for Blake belongs to the world of the individual selfhood, who is, of course, for Blake, Satan. Just as Jesus is the imagination, so is Satan the selfhood. And throughout Blake's long prophetic books, Jerusalem and Milton, what he is attacking is not human wickedness, but human <coughs> the selfhood, the righteousness of the individual self. And he sees the morality of the church as being this outward morality, which he calls cruel, that the true morality is from within. Jesus acted without rules. He acted from impulse, not from rules. That's in the marriage of heaven and hell. When you have contact with the God within, then you have no need for these outward rules. And in particularly the poem Milton, Blake attributes human morality specifically to Satan, who is the human ego, and is cruel and condemns and judges. Whereas Jesus, the imagination, is forever acting within spontaneously. And Job had to be absolutely subjected to this tremendous transformation because he was so rooted in his idea of his own righteousness. This had to be broken down. This is Blake's use of the story. During the time he was working on the illustrations of Job, Blake and his wife Catherine were living in two small rooms off the Strand, where the Savoy Hotel stands today. There he was sometimes visited by Henry Crabb Robinson, who had also been at his exhibition in 1809. Crabb Robinson was intrigued by Blake, but he was much more skeptical of him than the ancients, who were more nearly disciples. He kept a diary of all his meetings with Blake, and with him, we come closest to actually hearing Blake's conversation. As he spoke of frequently seeing Milton, I ventured to ask 
half ashamed at the time, which of the three or four portraits in Hollis's memoirs is the most like? He answered, they are all like at different ages. I have seen him as a youth and as an old man with a long flowing beard. He came lately as an old man. He said he came to ask a favour of me. He said he had committed an error in his Paradise Lost, which he wanted me to correct in a poem or picture. I replied, might I venture to ask what that could be? He wished me to expose the falsehood of his doctrine taught in the Paradise Lost, that sexual intercourse arose out of the fall. Now that cannot be, for no good can spring out of evil. Though very ready to be drawn out to the assertion of his favourite ideas, there was no warmth as if he wanted to make proselytes. Indeed, one of the peculiar features of his scheme, as far as it was consistent, was indifference and the entire absence of anything like reproach. I do not recollect that I ever heard him blame anything, then or afterwards. He had a very extraordinary degree of tolerance and satisfaction with what had taken place, a sort of pious and humble optimism, and, at the same time that he was very ready to praise, he seemed as incapable of envy as he was of discontent. On the 17th, I called on him in his house in Fountain's Court in the Strand. The interview was a short one and what I saw was more remarkable than what I heard. He was at work engraving in a small bedroom, light and looking out on a mean yard. Everything in the room, squalid and indicating poverty, except himself. And there was a natural gentility about the seeming poverty which quite removed the impression. Besides, his linen was clean, his hand white and his air quite unembarrassed, when he begged me to sit down as if he were in a palace. There was but one chair in the room besides that on which he sat. On my putting my hand to it, I, I found that it would have fallen to pieces if I'd lifted it. So, as if I had been a Sybarite, I said with a smile, will you let me indulge myself? And I sat on the bed, and near him, he smiled. During his last years, Blake seems to have been extraordinarily happy and to have made others happy as well. One place where he was always welcome was the Linnells' farm in Hampstead, where he and Samuel Palmer sometimes visited together, as Palmer's son later recalled. Fortunately for my father, Broad Street lay in Blake's way to Hampstead, and they often walked up to the village together. The aged composer of the Songs of Innocence was a great favourite with the Linnell children, who revelled in those poems and in his stories of the lovely spiritual things and beings that seemed to him so real and so near. Therefore, as the two friends neared the farm, a merry troop hurried out to meet them, led by a little fair-haired girl of some six years old. To this day, 
She remembers cold winter nights when Blake was wrapped up in an old shawl by Mrs Linnell and sent on his homeward way with the servant, lantern in hand, lighting him across the heath to the main road. In May of 1826, Blake was seriously ill, and from then on his health gradually failed. He was 69 years old, and he had used himself hard throughout his life. Four months before his death, he wrote to his old friend, George Cumberland. I have been very near the gates of death and have returned very weak and an old man, feeble and tottering, but not in spirit and life, not in the real man, the imagination which liveth forever. In that I am stronger and stronger as this foolish body decays. Flaxman is gone and we must all soon follow everyone to his own eternal house leaving the delusive goddess nature and her laws to get into freedom from all law. Into the mind in which everyone is king and priest in his own house. God send it so on earth as it is in heaven. William Blake died in August of 1827. George Richmond wrote to Samuel Palmer, who was out of town, to let him know. My dear friend, lest you should not have heard of the death of Mr. Blake, I have written this to inform you. He died on Sunday night at six o'clock in a most glorious manner. He said he was going to that country he had all his life wished to see and expressed himself happy, hoping for salvation through Jesus Christ. And just before he died, his countenance became fair, his eyes brightened, and he burst out in singing of the things he saw in heaven. In truth, he died like a saint, as a person who was standing by him observed. He is to be buried on Friday at twelve in morn. Should you like to go to the funeral? If you should, there will be room in the coach. Yours affectionately, G. Richmond. William Blake was an artist who felt in his bones the exhaustion of his civilization, and he turned away from it in order to explore the endless source of creation within himself. Would to God, he says, that all the Lord's people were prophets. He was an artist of extraordinary imaginative force, and his images are as full of pity and terror, wonder and love, as when he created them. It may be the whole body of his work, or just a single line of poetry, but it reaches out and seizes you. He wanted to make a difference in people's lives, and the better we have understood him, the more difference he has made. Trembling I sit day and night. My friends are astonished at me, yet they forgive my wanderings. 
I rest not from my great task. To open the eternal worlds, to open the immortal eyes of man inwards into the worlds of thought, into eternity ever expanding in the bosom of God, the human imagination. On Ideas, William Blake, Prophet of a New Age, Part 3. It was written and presented by David Cayley. You heard Barry McGregor as Blake and Gilly Fennick reading from a number of sources. The series was produced by Damiano Pietropaolo with the assistance of Alison Moss. Technical operations by Lorne Tulk. If you'd like a free reading list for the series, write to us at ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. And if you'd like a printed transcript, send a cheque or money order for $5 or $15 for the series to Ideas Transcripts, Blake, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. Tomorrow night on Ideas, five teens labelled as failures, dropouts and problem kids by their parents, teachers and social services talk about their lives and how they would like to fit into society. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht and I'm Lister Sinclair.